Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Father, now as we pray, we come before you and we ask your grace to understand what you are saying in this text, and we ask for your grace, Lord, to apply the text. Lord, we know it says in Hebrews 4 that your word is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And we also know that right after that it says we are open and laid bare before you. And so we pray you would use your word to do your work in all of our hearts, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main thought of this passage and this whole section Chapter 1, verse 4 to 218, is basically, it's, it's more than this, but at its core, drifting is dangerous. However, it's not necessarily so that every type of drifting is always dangerous. For example, when I was growing up, one of the things we loved to do was to go to the Gulf of Mexico, and we would go out many miles into the Gulf of Mexico and find an old World War II bombing site. The water was crystal clear, and you could look down. I'm not sure how many feet it was, 15 feet, 10 feet. You could see the bottom, and you could see these big holes where my dad said they used to practice bombing. Or in those holes would be all kinds of fish. And so we would just fish and those holes. There'd be grouper and dolphin fish and all kinds of other fishes. And we would just drift with the current and we would catch 20, 25 fish at least just in a few hours. That kind of drifting is not bad, right? It depends what you are drifting from and where are you drifting to. But there is a type of drifting that is bad. If you drift on the freeway when you're driving, is that bad? It could be bad. Have you ever been driving and taken your eyes off the freeway and off the car in front of you, and then all of a sudden the car in front of you stops, and either you hit the car or your spouse says, Tom, watch out, and you have to slam on the brakes because you were not paying attention. So there's a type of drifting that it can be bad. You can drift out of a lane into another lane and cause an accident, even a serious accident. So there is a type of drifting, certainly, where we can do like in a sailboat that's not necessarily bad. It can be good. It depends why are you drifting, where are you drifting to. And here in this passage that we have before us, it is a drifting away from Christ from something that is the most awesome thing in the universe, and it's drifting away ultimately to destruction. That's why in chapter 3 it says, 
I'm sorry, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's serious business in this passage. Now, for these professors in this passage, for these that are professing Christ, what was going on in their lives that the apostle, I shouldn't say apostle, that the Spirit of God wrote this text? Well, these individuals, these that had professed faith in Christ, they were being tempted to move off from Christ. Why was that? Well, they'd be tempted in context. They were being tempted to worship or to venerate or to pay an unhealthy respect to angels. Most of them most likely have been saved out of a type of Judaism that was dead, out of an Old Testament religion that was no longer enforced because it had been fulfilled by Christ. But this Judaism also had been infiltrated with a type of angelic worship. And so if they really wanted to truly be saved, if they really wanted help to overcome Satan, even if they wanted help and there are political battles, who would they call out to? To angels, to Michael. Even today, not today, even this week, I, I dialogued briefly with a person that had a dream. And in the dream, God told him that he was an angel. And he was so excited. It was nobody at this church. But he was so excited that he thought God had told him he is an angel. And how magnificent that was. He had this super unhealthy preoccupation with angel theology. And he was excited that maybe somehow he himself was an angel. It was rather odd. And I said, you're made in the image of God. And shared the gospel with him. I, I don't think he was saved or had any idea truly of the gospel. Even today, there can be an unhealthy view of angels. Even today, there are men and women that call on Michael the archangel to save them because he is the angel of battle and of war. At least that's what's been said. Well, Second Temple Judaism, from which these people that are being written to Some are believers, some have professed Christ, some are curious about Christ, but maybe not committed. Some are being entertained by Christ, but they haven't truly embraced Christ. They're being persecuted. If you remember, and we looked at chapter 10, you would see that some of them were being put in prison. Some of them were having all their possessions robbed because of their testimony for Christ. And so there's pressure on them to, you became a Christian, and then what happened? Did your life get better? You became a Christian and your life got worse. So maybe you should go back to the former religion. Come back home to your former religion, to your former life. Which involved, in context, at least a type of of angel veneration. That was their tradition. That was their religious tradition that was outside of the Bible. So what we said was this. We said that Jesus Christ, and the text is saying this, Jesus Christ is superior to your extra-biblical tradition. Therefore, focus on him so you don't drift into hell. Because these people, the, the, this beloved church, 
had confessed Christ, but they were beginning to, at least some of them, to drift away from this confession of Christ and to go back to a works-centered type of mystical type of legalism and to forsake Jesus. And so the Spirit of God is writing them and he's calling them to stay focused on Christ. Hold fast to your confession. And we said that this text, chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18, will give us these focus adjustments. Like if you were looking through your cell phone and you had to, uh, I have to adjust a picture. Ryan was playing and I wanted Lisa and the kids to, to see it. And so I had to, I, I taped part of it. You were live, Ryan. I, I taped it live, sent it to Lisa, and I had to go in and out. I had to focus it. This passage that we have in front of us will focus on different aspects and dimensions of that Jesus is fully divine, and yet Jesus is fully human. So stay focused on Jesus Christ. Hold fast this confession. And we've looked already at two of these focus adjustments. The first one we said was adore Christ above all things. Don't wander into apathy. That that is the intention of this whole passage. Be careful about religious, man-centered tradition and instead focus on Jesus. The second focus adjustment, we said this, that Jesus is fully divine, that Jesus is more awesome than angels. He is fully God, and his nature is far above elite spiritual beings because all spiritual beings, whether it's Michael, whether it's Cherubim, Seraphim, whether it's Satan, whatever angel, not fallen, unfallen, God created all of them, and Jesus is God. He's fully divine. So why would you go back to this religious tradition that's outside the Bible that lifts up angels when the one that created them is your Lord and Savior? Stay focused on Christ. And so this morning we come to our third focus adjustment. And it's this. Focus on the necessity of a sincere Christ-centered focus. Yes, be focused on Christ. And we want to be sure that that is a sincere, it's a true, a, a glad, not just a gaze, but this fixated focus on Jesus Christ. And if you look at the text, it says here, to what we have heard. Pay attention to what we have heard. And in context, that's who, who Jesus is, that he's fully God. But in context of the whole Bible, it's the gospel, right? Pay attention that God became man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for all sinners that would trust him, rose again. And chapter, uh, sorry, verse 3, chapter 1, he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father on high because he paid for the price of all sinners that would trust him. And you can have your sins completely forgiven. First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The gospel is what they have heard and in Christ of the gospel. And so they're being encouraged. Keep this sincere, glad-hearted, fixated focus on Jesus and not to be distracted by extra-biblical, religious type of things that you think, maybe I need to add this to Christ. Maybe I need to add this to my Christianity, but it's really outside the Bible, and it's outside of Christ. 
Whereas we have this necessity of a sincere, Christ-centered focus, this involves several things. What does the text mean? What do I mean when I say focus, when I say pay closer attention, when the text says that? What does that involve? Well, first, it involves your responsibility. It involves your responsibility. We want to focus on him so we don't drift away. We don't want to drift away and go into a place which is not good, which is destructive for ourselves and maybe even for others. How do we do that? We have a sincere focus on Jesus. I'm going to look at Jesus and fixate on him. I'm going to stare at him and have this unwavering gaze at him. How do I do that? Well, it involves my responsibility. Look at the text. Note what the text says as it starts. For this reason, we. For this reason, we. First, note it says we. We. We means what? It means all of us. It's very broad. For this reason, we must pay closer attention. Who was the human author that wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't know for certain. An apostle or a close associate, an apostle. But he says, we. That would mean, if you're here this morning, and I've read this text, and it talks about drifting away and neglecting a, a great salvation. Perhaps your, your thought is, Lord, I pray for my wife. I pray for my kids. I, I pray for these people that I know. And, and you're sincere. There are people that you know and that I know that have backed off from Christ, that, that have left Christ, that no longer come to church at all. And you're thinking about them and you're praying for them. That's not bad. However, that is, it's not bad to think about that. But however, your, your first thought should be you. This is, this book is being written to people that professed faith in Christ. And here, even the writer of the letter, even the human author is saying, not you must pay closer attention, but we. That is the, the most mature person here today needs to pay attention to Jesus Christ so they don't drift away. The most spiritually person that is most like Jesus needs to pay extra attention to Jesus so they don't fall away from faith in Christ. It's saying we. But also, if you keep looking at this first part of verse 1, it says, for this reason. There's a a logical and explicit connection from what was just talked about, chapter 1, verse 4 to 14, and now what is going to be talked about. That is, there is a response that must be made for this reason. Some of your versions might say, therefore, this is a different Greek word than the normal word for therefore. And it's a little bit more explicit, a little bit more strong, a little bit more persuasive. And that's even why sometimes some might, some translations might have the word necessity in here. There's a Greek word, D-E-I, day. And it's the idea of necessity are required. For this reason, we must 
is the term here. It has in the New American Standard, there is a necessity of a response. Logically, because Jesus is Yahweh, because he is God, because he has and will defeat all of his enemies, because he made all things, and including angels, because he sat down at the right hand of the Father, having finished his work, there is a response you must make. There's a responsibility that we have, and you can't shirk that responsibility. Anybody today, or anybody in the past or the future, that hears the gospel, or that you share the gospel with, have a responsibility to respond with faith. And not to respond is a response. So you could be here this morning, you could be older, you could be younger than me, and you could be... You know, I, I, I love God, I, I love Christ, but I think, and, and I know God loves me, but I'm not going to really respond. There, there's so much going on in my life right now. I, I don't really have the time for God. Maybe you're listening by MP3 or online. Maybe I, I just don't have that much time. I'm not going to really respond now. You know what? I'll respond maybe in a year when life is easier. That's a a response, and you're saying to Christ, no. We always respond every time we hear preaching, every time we hear the word. No matter who the agent is, when we hear God's word, and from our heart there's not a yes, Lord, I, I repent and I'll do this, then you are saying what? You're saying no, no, to God, to Jesus, the one that's on the throne, the one that died on the cross for sinners. That's why you have, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention. There will be a response. It's a necessity. It's not an option. You do what Jesus calls us to do, are you disobey, and there's a cost to saying no to Jesus. So this involves a responsibility. That is, as somebody that has heard now the gospel, has heard the Bible, has heard the truth, and especially as somebody that says, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, I am under necessity to respond with, yes, Jesus, yes, because he's my Lord. Colossians 2.6, therefore, since you have received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. So as we seek to have this sincere, glad-hearted focus on Christ, I need to recognize I have a responsibility and I will respond, either yes or no. By God's grace, I'll respond with, with yes, Lord, yes. Second, this involves an intense focus. We're talking about this third focus adjustment, and we want to have this sincere focus on Christ from our heart and from our head. Well, this focus, it's my responsibility. That is, I have to do it. I have to say yes. I can't just wait. I'm going to wait on God. Pray, wait on God, but you have to do it. You have to exercise it. It's your responsibility. But second, it involves your intense focus. Look back at verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. 
much closer attention. That is, as the habit of your life, that's the idea of when it says pay much closer attention. And the grammar is that of having this as a characteristic of your life. The habit of the focus of my heart and head, it's going to be on the supremacy of Christ. I'm going to aim my mind on the singular greatness of Jesus Christ. Above all things, that he's supreme over all and he's superior to all things, especially over elite spiritual beings like angels. Again, this isn't an option. There is this alertness, this assiduous alertness that is to be given to Christ. We must pay, must pay much closer attention. And there are these comparatives and superlatives that are all placed together, bringing this tight focus of our mind and heart upon God. Upon Jesus, that he is the preeminent son. And you can see where it says not just pay attention, but as I said, this type of not just a comparative, but even a higher than that, much closer. This superlative language that's used. Pay much closer attention. There is this fixatedness of mind and heart where your heart and head are just overcome and you are just, and your your mind is captivated by Christ, by who he is, by what we have, have heard. Again, if you look back at the text, it says we must pay attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. And some versions will say from it. The idea is from Christ and his gospel. What is it specifically that we are to look at when it says pay much closer attention and that we might drift away from it? Specifically, of course, it's talking about Christ, but what about Christ? Well, if we look at all that came before, that he's supreme over all things, that he's the Lord, that he's the creator, you can see verse 8 of chapter 1, your throne, O God, talking about the Son, is forever and ever. He is the Messiah. He is Yahweh. But we could also say, like, for example, John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man may come unto the Father except through me. And so we focus on Jesus Christ. Our thoughts, our, our love is focused on the only way to heaven is through Jesus. He is what is Really true. Life itself is him. If I know him and my wife and my kids and my relatives know him, then they will have eternal everlasting life. So my mind is fixated that and not my works or this other man-centered religion, though politics are not necessarily wrong, you know, health, whatever it is, sports, hobbies, all of that is not necessarily wrong. But what I am staring at with the heart, with my mind, is the preeminence of Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, for, for forgiveness, we, we focus on Christ. And Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So my mind is preoccupied now with, by going to church, by reading my Bible, by having a quiet time, I have forgiveness. No, that, that would be false. I have forgiveness in Christ. In him I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. So I'm focused 
on that truth about Jesus and what he did. Not just with, well, I'm going to be fixated on Christ and so I'm going to wear a cross around my neck. You've seen how so many movie stars and athletes love Jesus because they wear a cross around their necks. Do most of them really love Jesus? Are most of them fixated and focused on Christ with their heart and their mind? No. No, it's just a piece of jewelry. We focus on who Christ really is according to his word. We could even as well be focused, for example, in Ephesians, not just the idea of that we have forgiveness from him and in him, and he's gracious, but even his lordship. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about in verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. When we think about Christ and our our head and our heart are focused on him, we don't simply think that Jesus died, but he died on the cross according to his own plan for sinners, that, that he rose again, that he conquered Satan and hell and death forever and ever, and he lives evermore. Those are things that we think about when we think about Christ. When we think about Christ, we think about First Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, that Jesus one day will do what? According to First Thessalonians 4 and 5, that he will return. He's going to keep his promise, and he's going to return. We think of Titus, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Who is that? Christ Jesus. So I think that, at least in part, is what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 is talking about when it says here, pay much closer attention. Be, be fixated in your mind, not with what's happening in politics, what's happening in my bank account, or what's happening on faith. How long has it been since you looked at your Facebook account? You got to look at it. Sports scores. It's the NFL. You got to check out the scores. But rather, in in your heart and in your mind, I have to look at Jesus. I have to look at Christ. He's the Lord, the Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. He's going to return. He, he's the king. He, he's why I'm forgiven and why I'm going to reign forever with him. It's because of him and his grace and his unending love for me that I don't deserve and so that's what you're focused on. Now, to clarify, this is not to say you can't think of anything else, right? You have to brush your teeth. You have to make a meal. As we said, you have to drive a car. You, you can't be, you can't close your eyes and start singing, you know, Christian songs. Bang, you get in a car accident. You have to actually think about other things, but in your mind and your heart, the priority of your of of what you love, that that magnet that is pulling and and driving how you think and why you think and what you love is Christ Jesus, the Lord. He has the strongest focus of your heart. 
How do we get to that place? Well, the whole book of Hebrews, I believe, is going to be talking about that. For example, chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day. And so we'll talk more and more about this, how we keep this fixated focus, this glad, sincere heart that's in love with Christ. He's the priority in our heart and our head. We'll talk more about how we do that. But but just very, very briefly, you, you ask God for help. You pray and you have fellowship. You ask God, God, I, I need help to stay focused on Christ. I'm Christ is the most lovely thing in the universe. Naturally, my heart should be focused on him. Because I have remaining sin, at times that can be difficult for that to do. Lord, help me. And then you get in the word. It will read the Gospels. Read the New Testament. Read the book of Psalms. All those are very explicit about who God is and, and who Christ is. And then have fellowship. Hang out with other believers that love the Lord. Recently, I watched this interview with the man. He was a, a warrior and was involved in a lot of different activities that left his mind and heart scarred. And he's, as far as I know, he's not a believer, but he's learned how to meditate similar to a Buddhist monk. So how he starts his morning is he will meditate for about an hour. And he said for him, throughout his whole day, most of his thoughts throughout his day would be negative. And he thought that most people, most of the time, their thoughts throughout the day can be negative. And so he wanted to empty his mind. And he didn't mean empty his mind in terms of every single thing in his life, but empty his mind in terms of negative thoughts. And so for one hour, he would sit down and practice breathing, you know, five seconds in, five seconds out. And at first it was hard, but after some time, after a few months, he was able to do that and to get himself and his mind in a place where he was calm, cool, and collected, and he could master his, his mind. He could control what he would think about or would not think about. He had a type of deliberate, diligent focus. And he's not even a believer. And he had a diligent, deliberate focus and to a degree can, could control his thoughts. Now, I thought, that's very interesting. Scripture says, Second Timothy chapter one verse seven, for God has not given you and I a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So can I by God's grace empty my mind of sinful things and fill it with Christ and have a deliberate, diligent focus on Jesus? If this man that is following a type of Bershudo Buddhist religion, can I, by the Spirit of God, have a diligent, deliberate focus on Jesus? I think every Christian can, and we should. And again, it doesn't mean that that's every sum of every thought, every single moment of the day, 
But the direction and that priority of my heart and of my thoughts is that Jesus is more awesome than anything in the universe. Far more awesome. If I want to be happy and have joy, I find that in Jesus. Salvation, it's in Jesus. Overcoming sin, Jesus. Overcoming Satan, Jesus. If I want to have power, well, that's in Jesus. Comfort, that's in Jesus. Security, and Jesus Christ. Everything that I need to have godly, have godliness in my life, and to have a true life that thrives, it's found in Jesus Christ. And that's what really this passage is about. Pay much closer attention to Jesus. So there is this intense focus on Jesus. Third, we're talking about this focus, this sincere, glad-hearted focus on Jesus. It's a responsibility. It's this intense focus, this diligent, deliberate heart and head that's directed in my thoughts and in my loves toward Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then third, this involves a serious purpose. You can see it back here in verse 1. Most of this sermon will be on verse 1. You can see it at the end of verse 1, so that we do not drift away from it. It involves a serious purpose, so that we don't drift away from it. Again, look back at that that verse, verse 1. Look back at the end, what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Again, he doesn't say, so that you drift away from it. He says, we And so as I'm talking, don't simply think about your children, your spouse, your parents, these other people that have left Christ. If you think about them, pray for them, and then think about who? About you. Think about you. I should think about me. It's a very serious purpose. We have to be careful. And I think... This is so instructive because this book is starting off with this extra, uh, extra biblical religious tradition of angel worship, at least some type of respect and, and veneration more than Christ. And the Spirit of God is saying, don't do that. Instead, look at Jesus. And all of us have to be careful that we're, ha- that all of us have this diligent, deliberate focus on Jesus because we don't want to drift away. And maybe this morning, your temptation, my temptation is, I'm not going to drift away. I'm not going to fall away from Christ. I'm going to stand. Remember Peter? (laughs) He ended up denying Christ three times. One time to a little girl. And he even cursed and denied Christ three times. Peter, who thought that he was strong, ended up not being so strong. By God's grace, the Lord restored him. And I don't think he ever denied Christ ever, ever again after that time. But the Lord restored him. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, I believe it's verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, take heed, thinking that you stand, lest you fall. And so we as 
people that profess Christ and say that we love Christ, there wants to be this humility of, by God's grace, I will never fall away. Because he has my heart. Now, again, we're not saying that you can lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. To be saved means you are saved. That's what the word means. Ephesians 2, 8, which says, For by grace you have been saved. It's a perfect active indicative. That's the type of grammar it is, perfect verb. It means in the past you've been saved. Whenever you said, Lord, save me, God, save me, the Lord saves you, and it has abiding results. That is, once saved, he will keep you saved. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. It's a type of engagement ring that the work he started in you, he will finish it. Philippians 1, 6. But if you are saved, then there's so much power and grace from the Holy Spirit because of Christ in you that you're going to, though you may take a step backwards, you're going to keep pressing forward. You're going to keep, even when you fall, though you fall, the Lord is a light for you and will forgive you. And you say, don't rejoice over me, oh, my enemy, like in Micah 7. And you get up and you take a step toward Christ and you keep, keep pressing on toward Christ. You persevere in Jesus because God preserves you by Christ and by the Spirit of God. So we're not talking about losing your salvation, but if you are saved, you work out your salvation. Now, just two things about this intentional purpose of, I'm going to focus my heart and head, I'm going to have this deliberate, diligent focus on Jesus. We do that with intentional purpose so we don't far away. Now, note that it's not necessarily purposeful. Even if you look back here, it says, so that we do not drift away. Drift is the idea of glide or slide. Many of the people that you know, maybe not all of them, but many that you know that at one time professed to have faith in Jesus, and now have moved away from God and away from Christ and away from the church. It wasn't that one morning they just woke up. I'm going to deny Christ today and now and forever and go to hell. I've decided I want to go to hell. Maybe maybe a few people do that that are, I, I don't know, brain dead, possessed. But m- most people would never do that, and especially those that have professed faith in Christ. It wasn't all of a sudden that they just said, I want to leave Christ and live a wretched life and be an atheist. They don't just all of a sudden say that. It's small steps. It's drifting. It's it's not all of a sudden that they necessarily just put the pedal to the metal and I'm out of here, I'm leaving Christ at warp speed. Maybe sometimes that that happens, but not all the time. I have a friend that says now he doesn't believe that there's a heaven or a hell. Well, to believe that there's not a heaven or a hell, then you have to say that Jesus was a a liar. Well, then you have to say that the Bible is not inspired. He didn't set out to say such things. And he is an extremely, extremely smart individual. But that's what happens. There can be these 
small steps in our life, even morally. You know, I'm so busy. I'm going to read the Bible just a little bit less. (laughs) We're saved by grace alone. I'm going to pray a little bit less. We're saved by grace alone. I'm going to have fellowship a little bit less. And then after time, it becomes a little bit more. I'm going to sin just a little bit more in this area. I'm going to sin just a little bit more in this area. And then after time goes by, it's hard to get back. It's hard. That's the kind of drifting that Hebrews 2.1 is talking about. We want to be very careful that we're not going backward away from Christ. If we do go backward away from Christ, like Peter, the Lord will meet with us and he will forgive us. But being in that state where you are turning your back and walking away from Jesus is not a good place to be in. It's not a good place. Because it can be a willful negligence. Look now at verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The, intent, the, the unintentional purpose, that is that you, you didn't all of a sudden wake up one morning and say, I, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. That didn't happen. There were a series, most of the time there's a series of steps that brings that on. Maybe you were you promised things to yourself that God didn't promise to you. And you got upset at God. And you've drifted away. It wasn't you, a pre-planned out purpose. You, you didn't write down in your schedule, this week I'm not going to read the Bible. Next month I'm not going to pray. The, the next month I'm not going to have fellowship. You didn't do that, but that's what happened. Well, it becomes not just that it's an unintended purpose you had, but it becomes willful negligence. Willful negligence. And to a degree, all of us have been there with God. Will we willfully neglect the means of grace? And here, we can neglect a great salvation. What is this talking about? If I... I don't do this, but if I were NP all up just to go to Happy Donuts every morning, buy a box of two dozen donuts. They have the best donuts, I think. And if I just fed that to my kids every day, they, they would love me so much. Morning, lunch, dinner. Thomas, Elizabeth, favorite donut, man. I love you. Give them these donuts. I also love donuts and we ate them. Well, though I didn't intend to, I could potentially give them tooth decay and diabetes. That wasn't my intention, but it was neglect because of carelessness and a type of rejection of my duty and care for them. That's what this is talking about. It's not just, certainly, most of the time, it's not necessarily that we planned it out. Something happens, we respond to it in a wrong manner, and we end up neglecting our salvation. 
We end up neglecting God. We end up neglecting Christ. But it becomes a rejection. Neglecting my wife over a period of time would become what? God forbid it never happens, but if I neglect my kids and I neglect my wife, then fundamentally I am rejecting them. That's what's happening. And so the Spirit of God is being very loving and being very, very kind and saying, be sure that you have a diligent, deliberate focus from the heart and head on Jesus so these things don't happen. So you don't end up neglecting a responsibility that you have to follow the gospel. And again, this can come about. It may be a lack of worship. It may be a lack of prayer. maybe a lack of Bible reading, a lack of fellowship. But neglecting the means of grace and neglecting Christ will result in Eventually, if it's not stopped, rejecting Christ. Neglecting Christ and the duties that Christ gives you will end up rejecting Christ. That is a very dangerous place to be in. We're now in the text. We're going to be given even more motivation to have this deliberate focus of our heart and head on who Jesus is. And this involves, this involves your greater liability. So fixate on Jesus Christ. That's what we should really be focused on with our head and our heart. It's Christ. He should be the priority in our loves of mind and of, of drive in our heart. This includes a responsibility and includes this intended purpose. It also Includes this intense focus, but also this greater liability. And we've seen drifting is dangerous. Look again at verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Note the word escape. (laughs) That is escape the wrath of God. God provides a remedy and a way out. It's not from Satan, but from himself, from the wrath of God. So don't neglect the means of escape, which is Jesus Christ. Now, here in the text, in verses really 2 through 4, it's an argument from lesser to greater than. It's an argument from lesser to greater than. And if you just look at verse 2 and 3, you can see this. You can see the, for if the word spoken, and it's the idea of the Old Testament and on Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to Moses, and some sort of way, there were angels that were there attending that whole event. And we see this at different places in the word of God. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 33. So in biblical history, when God gave the law to Moses... In some sort of way and manner, angels were there. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing light for them. Now, there, there's more that's said, for example, 
You can look at Galatians 3.19, and there's even some other verses, which you can find by cross-references, but Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And you can see how angelic tradition came forth, was born, perhaps even from some of these ideas, but... Judaism made it super elaborate and it became an unbiblical preoccupation. Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So in some sort of way, there's not great detail that's given, but in some sort of way, angels were involved, were associated with, and the giving of the law to Moses. Now, if you look back at our passage in Hebrews, then this passage is saying when God did that, he gave the law, he gave the Old Testament, and it could not be changed, and God's word did not fail, and it didn't need to be improved. It was the sure word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. It's a, the inspired word of God. And angels were involved with that. And yet when the Israelis, and even when we, transgress it, what's a transgression? And when God takes, or, or for anybody, were to make a boundary, a line, maybe you do to your children, and you say, don't cross that line. And then what does your child do? Steps over it. That's the idea of transgression, this high-handed rebellion. But the next word in the text, when it says disobedience, is the idea of not listening. So when somebody doesn't listen to the word here, to the Old Testament, when they don't listen to it, I don't hear you. No, nope. you know, you're talking to your child, and what can happen sometimes? I'm not listening. I can't even hear. Or we say, don't do this, and they do the exact thing we told them not to do. That's what we did and what we do with the Old Testament. With the whole Bible, but here the Old Testament. That's what the Israelis did and what happened to them. Especially after Mount Sinai. Judgment. Read the book of Judah. Judgment. You know, if you read the Old Testament, you can see there was judgment. Second Kings, First Kings, Chronicles. When they disobeyed, God pursued them to, to primarily to redeem them, but also to, to judge their sin. Because the very nature of God is holy. By no means where he let the guilty go unpunished. So God gave the law. There were angels that were associated with that. And if people spurned God's word, even the Old Testament, God didn't go, ah, it's just the Old Testament. It's just the Old Testament. No, he held them accountable to it. Then, verse 3 says, then how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's the idea that now Christ, chapter 1, now Christ, the Son of God, has been born. He is the gospel. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He finished his work. He died on the cross for all sins of all people that would ever trust him. The Old Testament has been fulfilled. He is the tell us of the law. He completed and finished the law. If that's true, then What's being said is our liability is even greater than the Old Testament. Or you can think of it this way. It's not, what this passage is saying is not, for by grace we're saved through faith in Christ. 
So it doesn't really matter. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is, since we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the stakes actually are higher. Judgment is greater now. Because the Old Testament, all those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. There is a Savior, there is a Lord, there is a King, there is a Redeemer, there is a Lion of God and a Lamb of God, and His name is Yeshua. It's Jesus Christ. And He's going to return. He's your King and your Redeemer, my King and my Redeemer and my Lord and yours. Therefore, it's not just that some angels gave this to you, but rather Jesus Christ Himself. And that's why if you keep looking at the passage in verse 3, it says, after it was the first spoken through the Lord, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, says that Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God, and he said, repent and believe. Jesus Christ, Mark chapters 1 and 2 was great, because chapters 1 and 2 talk a lot about his preaching ministry. He was preaching the gospel about himself. Jesus Christ preached the word and spoke the truth on how to be saved and what it meant to be righteous. Then the text says in verse 3, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. He's talking about the apostles. Not the writer, but those that came before him, the apostles, they preached Jesus. Jesus preached himself and the truth of God about how to be saved and then After that, his disciples and his apostles. And then verse 4. It's going to even raise the stakes. This was confirmed. How was it confirmed? By his apostles and those that were associated with them doing great miracles. Moses, before he gave the law, what did Moses do? Did did he do any miracles before he gave the law? Yes. Before Moses, before God gave the law to Moses, to the Israelites, there were many miracles that God did through Moses, confirming that Moses was a true prophet and speaking with prophetic, revelatory authority. It was the same thing with Jesus and the apostles. Did Jesus do any miracles? He did more miracles than Moses and all the prophets combined of the Old Testament. Raised the dead, healed the sick. Now, so did the apostles. But when they did their miracles, it was an absolute certainty that something miraculous had happened. It wasn't, I have a stomachache. Lay your hands on the TV and your tummy can be healed. Put a little cloth on your head and pray this prayer and then your headache will go away. It it wasn't those type of healings. There were people that were dead that were brought back to life. Now, I have had people that come to me and and have told me that I was dead, Tom. And when I was dead, I saw Jesus, and he told me to tell you to allow me to go to your seminary. So I said, how long were you dead? I think it was like 30 seconds, maybe. Well, in the Bible, you know, they're dead, dead. Not just a little bit dead. Dead, dead, dead. Even wrapped up, dead. So the miracles in the Bible are not things that can be explained away by natural means. Dividing the bread and the loaves, just a few fishes, just a few loaves of bread, and then, you know, seven, five thousand, maybe twice that number, ten thousand, twelve thousand are fed. Those are incredible lordship miracles where the Lord of the earth intervenes into 
the natural cycle of things and does extraordinary things that can only be explained by God. God did this. And these belonged to the apostles. And we could say sometimes to their close associates. You can see this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and by miracles. So please understand this point. The point is that these extraordinary deeds and events happened by Jesus and the apostles that cannot be explained at all by any natural means. They were immediate and they were total. It was the Spirit of God, the text says, that gave them these gifts, that was operating through them according to his own will and by his own power. And this confirmed that Christ and the message was authentic. That's why when you read the Gospel of John several times, it talks about this was a sign that Jesus did. That's a huge purpose of the whole Gospel of John. You've heard this before, and I'll tell you again just to underscore what's being said here, is when I was in India, there were a bunch of lepers that were lined up side of my flat to my apartment. And I had brothers and sisters in Christ that were charismatic, and they would talk about healing, and we need to have healing crusades. And so I said, okay, that's great. Get your man that does the healing and come to my flat. Outside, there are seven lepers that are always there. You come out, heal them, and I'll preach. Why not? Why not? I'm for it. (laughs) I'm for healing. I'm for miracles. I'm for wonders. I'm for these extraordinary events that God does by his spirit through individuals that he's gifted. Please, come. You know, they, they, they never came. Ever. And so these lepers suffered. God, during this time of apostolic revelation to verify that Jesus was who he said he was, that the apostles were divinely sent messengers of him, gave them these gifts to do these extraordinary things that cannot be explained in any other way than God did this. And if you look at the text, it says, not it is being confirmed, but it was confirmed to us. It happened. It's not continuing to happen. Now, God is God. Right? God's not bound. God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. God can always do a miracle. But these miraculous sign gifts were for a specific time to verify the authority of the revelation that was being given through Christ and his apostles. Now, why is all this being told? That's the point. We can't lose the point. Since this is true, then we are more liable We're not just at Mount Sinai. We're at the cross and we're at the empty tomb. We're what the Old Testament pointed to, and that was the Savior, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for sinners and rising again. And so then our salvation is fantastically great from having all of our sins forgiven to reigning with Christ forever and forever. Remember Revelation 22 verse 5 and they will reign, they would see his face and they will reign with him forever and forever. 
That's incredible. That's unbelievable. That is part of this great salvation. And it was verified by all the miracles that Christ and his apostles did. So if we neglect that, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to coast. I'm going to drift. I'm going to drift for Jesus. It's a type of rejecting the greatest thing that God could ever give you, and that's Jesus. The greatest gift and the greatest thing that God could ever do for you is to give you Jesus. And then for me, or for you to say, you know, I'm just going to step back and take it easy and not have this deliberate focus in my heart and head on, on, on him. You're rejecting the very greatest deed that God could ever do for you, and that's to give you Jesus. Don't do that. If I was, are you, if you were in Niagara Falls and you were above the falls, you were in, in the river, and you had fallen off maybe a boat, and, and you're about to go off Niagara Falls without a barrel, without a raft. And there's a boat that saves you. They pull you up. And you're, you're so tired. You're just, <sighs> I'm so tired. I thought I was a goner. I, I thought I was dead. They dry you off. They give you hot chocolate. Ah, thank you. Where are we going? Uh, we're going to port. And so you're going to port. And then you get this thought in your head. Do I really need this boat? This hot chocolate is good. But do I really need this boat? I want to be free. I've got my own style. I can do it. It's not hopeless. I can do it. I think if I just swim this way, I'll be okay. So you jump out of the boat. Wouldn't that be the dumbest thing that you ever did? I think that would be. Don't jump the boat. <laughs> Don't jump out of the ark. And that ark is Christ. The greatest gift that God could ever give to you, he already gave to you. But God demonstrates his own love toward us while yet we were sinners. Christ died for you. And that's what God gave you. By his grace, let us have this diligent, deliberate focus on him because he's worthy. Lord, we thank you for your word. May the love of our heart and even the thoughts of our mind be deliberately and diligently focused on you. Because you're gracious and you're loving and you're kind and you're magnificent and you're the Lion of God, even the Lamb of God. Help all of us, Lord, especially those of us that think that we are so spiritually mature. May we even more focus on Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you look at us, that you consider us. That you came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. We give you thanks for that, Lord. And, and may this thanksgiving, may we be thankful that you give us a great salvation. And may we never neglect it, Lord. We give you the glory. We pray that you'd be glorified for Christ's sake. Amen.